At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Free Expression with Jerry Baker. Hello and welcome to Free Expression with me, Jerry Baker from the Wall Street Journal Opinion Pages. Thank you very much indeed for listening. I hope you're a subscriber. If you're not already, please subscribe at Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever else you get your podcasts. And please leave us a nice review. This week, as 2022 comes to a close, the outlook for the US economy is especially cloudy. Inflation continues to be the biggest challenge facing the American people and their economic policymakers. Now, while the headline rate of inflation and consumer prices has edged down in the last couple of months, it still stood at an annual rate of 7.7% in October, and the core rate of price increases remains close to levels that haven't been seen in decades. The Federal Reserve, which belatedly recognized late last year that inflation was not, after all, transitory, as it had once claimed, has been running ever hard ever since to catch up, raising its key interest rate this year from close to zero to nearly 4%. It's still expected to go higher, though on Wednesday, Federal Reserve Chairman Jay Powell said in an important speech that it would now probably made sense for the Fed to slow the pace of its tightening, suggesting perhaps that rates may rise by another half point in December and maybe only a little bit more after that. This was greeted quite positively by the markets. But while this Fed policy may finally be starting to slow the inflation rate, it's increasingly likely that the rate increases will push the economy into recession. In a recent survey of economists for the Wall Street Journal, a large majority forecast a recession in 2023. So what is the outlook? Has inflation peaked? Will the price of overcoming inflation be a slump? Worst of all, could we be back to an era of stagflation, that unusual phenomenon of high inflation and weak or negative growth? Well, to talk about all this, I'm joined this week by a leading economist and former vice chair of the Federal Reserve, Alan Blinder. Professor Blinder is professor of economics at Princeton University. He was appointed to the Fed by President Bill Clinton in the 1990s. He also served on Clinton's Council of Economic Advisors. He's published extensively on economic subjects, especially on monetary policy. And he's out with a new book, A Monetary and Fiscal History of the United States, 1961 to 2021. He joins me now. Professor Blinder, thanks for being here. Oh, glad to be with you. So I want to talk to you about your new book and also you're as a long-standing and very distinguished economist about the larger framework in which monetary policy and fiscal policy has been operating and some of the changes in that framework that we've seen over time and indeed some of the ways in which monetary policy will have to adapt in the next few years. But I want to start off with the immediate outlook for the US economy. Obviously, it is uncertain. It's always uncertain, but it seems particularly uncertain right now. We're coming off a year in which consumer price inflation hit a 40-year high. The Federal Reserve very belatedly, did raise interest rates, but has aggressively raised interest rates. Inflation, you know, may now be coming down. There's some signs that it's coming down, although they're tentative and uncertain so far. But at the same time, of course, we're seeing some weakening in the economy with the housing markets weakening. It's been a troubled year for a lot of financial markets. It's possible the labor market is just starting to turn. Let's start with this question of inflation, Professor Blind, if I may. Do you think it's likely that we have seen the peak of inflation? Yeah, I'm glad you used the word likely because it's. (laughs) I can't say this with great confidence. I don't think anybody can. But I think it's likely that we have seen the peak in inflation. And I'll just tick off the reasons. And as I tick them off, you can see that any one of them could go the other way. The first is the economy is slowing down modestly, but slowing down. That is reducing the overshoot, if there was an overshoot, 
whatever it was, it's now less than it looks like it's receding. Secondly, energy prices are coming down, at least here in the United States. We hope that will hold. Thirdly, the bottleneck problems that we in the U.S. and all the countries of the world basically have been facing since the recovery from the pandemic began in earnest are receding fairly dramatically, awaiting times for ships and trucks, transport costs, there are shortages of this and that. All of that is getting better. Now, as I said those things, you could probably raise questions. Are you sure that will continue to get better? And no, I can't be sure that they will, but it looks that way now. I think it's pretty well widely agreed that the Federal Reserve was a little late to the game, insisting pretty well all the way through 2021 that the inflation we were seeing then was transitory, despite the warnings of many leading economists that that wasn't the case, that inflation was more embedded than that. And again, now they've been playing catch up ever since. Why did they seem to get it so badly wrong? I think there were two basic reasons, and they did get it wrong, and Jay Powell and others on the Fed have admitted that they got it wrong. I think the first was the continued worry back a year and a half ago, which is when the inflation sort of started, that the economy was still weak. And if they kicked it in the teeth, the recovery might be imperiled. Now, you can argue that was wrong. There was great underlying strength, and maybe that's right. But that was their thinking. They were worried about that. Remember, the Fed does have a dual mandate, unlike the Bank of England or the ECB. And the second was what you alluded to about the belief that these inflationary forces were transitory. Uh, You will remember, I'm sure, Jerry, the derisive remarks about team transitory. But the Fed was signed up for team transitory. I don't think Jay Powell ever used that word, but he and others on the Fed used vocabulary that made it clear that they were on team transitory. And unfortunately for them and for us, transitory turned out to be a lot longer than we thought. There's a large debate about this, I know, going on. But what role do you think that the fiscal support packages, particularly the one in early 2021, just after the new Biden administration came in, which nearly $2 trillion worth of fiscal support, that was criticized heavily at the time by some of your fellow Democratic-leaning economists, people like Larry Summers and Jason Furman, as highly risky because there were bottlenecks in the economy, there were supply constraints, and you were pouring a very significant amount of demand onto that situation in a way that would be inflationary. Obviously, the, the, you know, the core reason for the inflation was the supply chain disruptions and all the other things that we saw as a result of the pandemic and the lockdowns. But how much of a role do you think that that additional fiscal support package, that additional stimulus provided? I think a small role. I've seen estimates of that coming out of econometric models as high as two percentage points, which I find hard to believe, and as low as 0.2 of a percentage point, which is nothing really, but I find it a little easier to believe. I think the criticism that it was too large, given the circumstances, is probably valid. I probably shared it silently at the time. As a Democrat, I wasn't eager to dump on the Biden administration. But, you know, if I ruled the world, which is a silly thought, I would have made it much smaller than what passed. But all that said, I don't think it was a major force behind the inflation that we now have. And as clear evidence for that, look around at England, look at the euro area and others where they're experiencing these supply shocks that we've experienced. Now, admittedly, they're worse there, but they're experiencing them. And they didn't have the Biden fiscal policy. 
But I want to come on to the, the broader topic of the interaction between fiscal and monetary policy, which, again, you go through in your, your latest book very well. I want to come on to that in more detail later. But do you think, again, looking back at that period or even thinking about it, what you were thinking at the time, that having a fiscal policy which was leaning in such an expansionary direction, you know, to support people in the late stages of the pandemic, but, and having a monetary policy which seemed to kind of be completely supportive of that, leaning in the same direction, not just with essentially zero interest rates, but obviously with quantitative easing, which was still going on at that point, very, very strong communication policy signaling uh, supportive and accommodating monetary policy. Given what we've seen in terms of the way monetary and fiscal policy interact over the years, wasn't that in itself maybe rather an imprudent thing for monetary policymakers to do, given the direction of fiscal policy? Surely it's part of the Fed's role is to some extent is to balance policy and to push back a little bit. I think you could make that argument. One could make that argument and people have made that argument. The flip side of the argument is This is a brand new uh, administration, just come in, and to precipitate a clash between the Federal Reserve and the White House at that early stage, when, let's remember, the Fed itself wasn't that confident in the strength of the recovery, I would argue would have been imprudent on the Fed's side of the ledger. If they were absolutely sure that the economy was about to zoom upward into the wild blue yonder, then yeah, they should have started tightening interest rates right away. But they weren't sure of that. And as we said a few minutes ago, no, that was an error that they made. So let's look forward to what may happen in the next six to nine months. You know, having made the error of being late to the interest rate increases, the Fed now, in the minds of a lot of people, maybe has now gone in the other direction, has gone too far. And that with this rapid rates of increase this year, we've seen basically a 400 basis point increase in the course of the year. We're going to see more in December. Pretty well, everybody expects rates probably still to go a little bit higher in the new year with a peak maybe of 5% for the Fed funds rate. There's a lot of concern now as people look at some of the data coming in, housing markets, perhaps some indications in some other areas of the economy, that we could be headed for a sharp downturn. And the Fed itself, in its own forecast, expects unemployment to rise by about a percentage point at the middle of next year. Do you think now the risk is that the Fed has overdone it? Not now. I think it's something to keep in mind. And one of the reasons that I say not now in terms of worrying about the Fed overdoing it is the words that are coming out of the Federal Reserve themselves, talking about slowing down the pace of increase. And importantly, this is a subtlety that I think gets lost on a lot of people, but not on monetary policy experts. Many of them, including Powell and Brainerd, are emphasizing the long lags in monetary policy. If you think of what that means, they're saying, we've done a lot already. It's unreasonable in November of 2022 to think that the effects of what we've already done are fully in the economy. There's a lot more to come. And now they don't say, but then the rest of it is, and therefore we ought to step carefully going forward with yet more interest rate increases. That's the subtle message that's coming out of the Fed now. And I'm very happy to hear that message because it is a safeguard against the danger that you were just properly alluding to. Do you think a recession in the next year is inevitable? Not inevitable. I think if the Fed is both nimble in its behavior and the luck, which has been bad luck up to now, turns into a bit of good luck, say, with energy, food, and supply disruptions. And let me add, the fiscal side doesn't do anything really stupid. Come back in a second to what that could be. 
we could get by without a recession, but we need all that. Now, the really stupid thing fiscal policy could do is precipitate a crisis over the national debt ceiling, or worse yet, a default or near default on the U.S. national debt. I want to talk about that. But let's just come back to the immediate, so the outlook for demand and for the, and the risk of a recession. It is historically the case. I think there hasn't been a time when the Fed has raised interest rates as aggressively as it has in the course of the last year, when I think the economy has not had a downturn and has not had a significant increase in unemployment. As I said earlier, that even the Fed itself, without sort of obviously specifying what will happen to demand, does think unemployment is going to go higher in the course of the next year. What would it take, do you think, this time for the economy kind of to defy that historical precedent and manage a way through this very sharp tightening of monetary policy? I think a couple of things. One we were talking about just a moment ago, the Fed has to not overdo it. To put that a number to the basis point on that is basically impossible. So they're going to be trying to walk a fine line without knowing exactly where that fine line is. And that's one of the things that makes it hard. Secondly, the consumer has to step up to the plate. I think the American consumer is and will step up to the plate. American households have accumulated in the last several years huge amounts of liquidity, a lot of which is just sitting in checking accounts and, you know, as accessible as could possibly be. And they tend historically to be spendthrifts, as you know. So I think part of the answer, how we will, will we avoid a recession if we do, is going to be the consumer spending at substantial rates. And by the way, you mentioned that the forecast is for the unemployment rate to rise. Yes, absolutely. But think about it. The Fed is talking about a rise from three and a half to four and a half. If you went back just the well, I don't think you have to go back. You could ask many economists, some of the whom you mentioned before, like Larry Summers and Jason Furman and others, if they think four and a half is higher than full employment. I don't think they do. Right. I mean, there are obviously measurement questions there, aren't there? And we know that there's been movement out of the labor force. So, so the actual, maybe the, the U6, the, the kind of real unemployment rate could be higher. But, but I take the point that we're not necessarily seeing any kind of sort of spike in the unemployment rate that we normally associate with the recessions. I agree with that. But let me put this to you, Alan, because I'm thinking of this context of how you achieve a soft landing. I think you're being sort of um, commendably modest there, because I think the one occasion in the last maybe 40 or 50 years or so when the Fed did execute a very sharp tightening of monetary policy without actually producing a recession in fact, the economy, you know, continued in pretty robust health was when you were on the Fed back in the mid-1990s and we had that very sharp, you were the vice chair, uh, we had that very sharp increase in interest rates, which people did fear would produce a recession. It didn't. Are there any parallels, do you think, that we can learn from that period when you were there, when rates did go much higher, when, you know, the bond market really kind of, you know, responded in a very alarmed way and sort of fell out of bed, but the economy somehow managed to muddle through? Do you think there are lessons there? I think there are not too many lessons there, and I'll say why in a second. But I think the one lesson that is there is that what we were talking about before, which is beware of overshooting. Of course, I want to take credit for the whole thing and not give any to Alan Greenspan, but <laughs> we did stop raising rates back then at a much lower peak rate than the markets were expecting, not too long after we started to slow down and stop. I remember vividly the Fed Fund Futures market at one point pricing in an 8% peak Fed funds. We actually peaked at 6%. That was a big error by the markets. Nobody inside the FOMC at that time, even the most hawkish members, and we had big hawks, thought we were going to 8%. And I urged Alan Greenspan to sort of make that clear with 
what we would now call forward guidance. That term wasn't part of the lexicon in 1995, and he refused. This was the day when the Fed said nothing and said it cryptically. But the belief eventually did go out of the markets as they saw the behavior of the FOMC. So the the one lesson is don't overdo it. And the modern version of that, which, as I said a few minutes ago, the Fed really is doing already, is don't let the markets think you're going to overdo it. And I think that they are doing that. Now, the reason I said there aren't that many parallels is that blissfully for us in the 94, 95 period, we weren't faced with these supply shocks from oil and food. We never even thought of these supply side disruptions of not enough ships, not enough containers, not enough semiconductors. I mean, nobody was thinking about anything like that at the time. So most of the bad luck that the Fed has had, that the economy has had in the last couple of years was not part of the prelude to the soft landing that we managed in the uh, 1990s. I know economists uh, hate to be put on the spot. You know, there's an old line about somebody always wanted a one-handed economist. But let's, for the sake of entertaining our listeners, as a former vice chair of the Fed, if you were there now, so so Fed funds is currently close to 4%. I think that pretty well everybody universally expects them to do another 50 basis points in December to take it to four and a half. There's some possibility they may go further or may go less, but that seems to be the very likely outcome. And then there seems to be a general expectation that rates will peak around perhaps at five in the first or second quarter of next year. If you were there now, would that be your expectation? Yeah, I think it would be. And I think I'd feel fairly comfortable with that, especially since the Fed is not going to be locking itself in now to what it will do at the January meeting. I mean, things could look different by then. It's unlikely things will look very different between now and the December meeting. And the notion that they'll slow down from this series of 75 basis point hikes to 50 is by now, I think, deeply ingrained in market thinking. And I think that's a good thing. The Fed has helped that get that ingrained. So that kind of scenario that you were sketching, Jerry, seems like at this point, a pretty good guess as to where the Fed will be going in the next few months including the possibility that that will be it, that the peak will come, let's just say, around five. Again, we're now getting obviously into dangerous, much longer term forecasting territory. Again, there's some indications in the financial markets now that they may be expecting rates to start coming down, perhaps in the second half of 2023. Is that premature? I think it's premature. It's not impossible. That will depend almost completely on the behavior of inflation. As we were saying a moment ago, as you were saying, and I was agreeing uh, a few moments ago, it sort of looks like inflation has peaked and is coming down. If it keeps coming down, 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 then the notion that rates will come down also, say, in the second half of next year is quite realistic. If that doesn't happen, it's not realistic. We've got to take a short break there. But when we come back, I'll have more with Alan Blinder on the outlook for the U.S. economy and what the Fed and perhaps also maybe what the new Congress can do about it. The Claude 3 model family from Anthropic is your one-stop shop for enterprise AI. With models at every point on the price-performance curve, you no longer have to make trade-offs between intelligence, speed, and cost. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between skills and speed. And Haiku is the fastest and lowest-cost model on the market, perfectly designed for high-volume, high-speed use cases. Join the thousands of enterprises who trust Anthropic to keep them at the frontier. Visit anthropic.com Claude today. 
I'm back with Alan Blinder, Professor of Economics at Princeton, former Vice Chair of the Fed, out with a new book on the recent history of monetary and fiscal policy. And we're talking about the state of the US economy. Let's talk about the task for fiscal policy and just in the immediate future. You've already mentioned the risk of a kind of a fiscal accident that we've come close to in the past. We're coming up on a deadline for could lead to a government shutdown on spending. We have the debt ceiling question coming up also sort of not far behind. How concerned should we be about the risk here of that, as I say, of a kind of a fiscal accident in the course of the next few months? I think we should be considerably concerned. It's tempting to look back at the past. And by the way, I wish more Republicans would look back at the past and see the damage that was done and the potential damage that was barely avoided by skating up to the brink but not going over the brink and learning a lesson from that, including, by the way, I'm an economist, not a political prognosticator, but including a political lesson. This goes back to the Gingrich House of Representatives in the mid-90s. My reading of the history of this brinkmanship and government shutdowns and so on is that they have not redounded to the political benefit of the Republicans. So what I was suggesting before is it doesn't look like this crop of Republicans knows that or cares about it or pays any attention to it, but I think it's in their interest to do so. And it's certainly in the national interest to do so. So I think the best guess, coming to your question, is they walk right up to the brink, put one foot over the cliff, and then bring it back and don't actually cause a technical default on the national debt. But frankly, given the crazy things that have come out of the mouths of some of the members of Congress in recent months, I'm not as convinced of that as I wish I was. You know, the Congress, which is just about to end the last two years, has embarked on a pretty dramatic, by historic standards, pretty dramatic fiscal expansion. We talked about the stimulus right at the start. We had the so-called Inflation Reduction Act. I hope you're probably going to agree with me that uh, whatever else that was, contents don't support the title, as it were. We had the big bipartisan infrastructure spending plan too. I mean, by any measure, a sort of an aggressive expansion of the role of fiscal policy, the role of the state in the last couple of years. And Republicans, uh, you know, understandably want to A, call a halt to that and maybe seek some retrenchment. I mean, what's your reading of where we are in the overall sort of fiscal picture of the US and what a sensible medium-term fiscal approach would look like? My overall assessment is that we probably overdid it on fiscal stimulus. I said that a few minutes ago. I don't believe the infrastructure law, which was bipartisan, by the way, was an example of that. We need that infrastructure. And if you're worried about the national debt, you shouldn't worry if it's being put to productive use. And besides, a lot of that was paid for. And the other thing I would say is, if you look at the recent data, as you have, you alluded to this earlier, Jerry, the fiscal policy is turning in the opposite direction, mostly by the big stimulus that came in in early 21, petering out and ending and not being repeated. And of course, it should not be repeated. So let's talk about your book and the broader historical context, which is fascinating. And obviously, our current context is evolving all the time in the light of that history. It's a fascinating period from 61 to 21. You look at the the history of monetary and fiscal policy in the US. To me, it seems, and having read a large part of the book and having experienced it as a journalist for a lot of that time, we went through this extraordinary period where monetary policy, we had the sort of the apotheosis of monetary policy. Really, again, you talked about Greenspan earlier. There was that period you know, beginning with Volcker in the 80s when Volcker was 
credited probably rightly with extraordinary success in getting control of inflation. Then we had Greenspan come in. Greenspan was seen as the you know, long-standing chairman of the Fed, steered the economy through remarkably successful economic times in the 1990s. You know, we all thought central banks around the world followed the Fed model of independence. The Bank of England went independent in the UK. The ECB followed a sort of, you know, Bundesbank model, but also with the strong sense that the central banks were these enormously important institutions that should be given all this authority. And we had the financial crisis. Now we've got this inflation problem, which central banks don't seem to have handled very well. Do you think the cycle is turning and maybe this elevation of central banks to this extraordinarily, uniquely important role in the economy, do you think that's changing? Could be a little bit. I'll tell you what I do think is changing, and then I'll try to come to your specific question. The economic crisis caused by the financial crisis, and then the economic crisis caused by the pandemic, were both so large that it was clear to everybody, oh well, almost everybody, that fiscal and monetary policy together had to put their shoulders to the wheel and push in the same direction, cooperate even, which sort of on the surface goes against the notion of central bank independence, but I don't think in any serious way. I mean, the Fed in under Bernanke and then the Fed under Powell both had to do everything they could to push the economy uphill from the depths and the fiscal authorities were doing the same. So because of those two events, we've now realized, which we really didn't realize, let's say in 2006, that we may need both policies pushing in the same direction at times. Prior to that, the view in most economic circles since Reagan was that stabilization policy was up to the central bank. This is in the U.S. And that sort of seeped into other countries as well, but it was especially pronounced in the United States. You may remember, Jerry, you may have been covering this at the time. An example of that is we had this recession under George Bush I in 91. What was the fiscal reaction to that? Oh, let's raise taxes because the deficit is so big. I mean, nobody was pushing for what you might call Keynesian fiscal policy to get us out of that. The view was monetary policy was on its own to do that job. But the jobs became so large in 2007, 8, 9, and then again in 2020 that both policies had to be cooperating, if I may use that term. Now, to finish your question, in the case of the financial crisis, the history of that is now over and we can look back. There was a tremendous backlash against the Fed for the power that it displayed. And its wings were clipped a little bit, not much, but a little bit in the Dodd-Frank Act. But people at the time were talking about clipping them a lot more than actually happened. The Fed got away with skill and luck with very little wing clipping. I wouldn't be shocked if when the dust is clear on this episode, there was another backlash of that nature against the mighty, powerful, but not democratically elected Federal Reserve. We'll see. What could that entail? I mean, we've, you know, we've seen, obviously, some of the Dodd-Frank changes. You saw the changes in the 70s with dual mandates, the idea that the Fed should both pursue price stability and full employment. Again, given the general sense that they have got the inflation thing badly wrong, and who knows, they may end up, as we've said, leaning too far in the opposite direction. What sort of practical measures do you think might be taken to address that and to maybe try to avoid the Fed making those kind of mistakes again? Well, I think one possibility, but I don't think it'll happen, 
is going back to the emergency lending. I alluded to this after the financial crisis, the Fed's ability to do that kind of emergency lending under Section 13.3 was limited in principle and in law. Now, it turned out when 2020 rolled around, the Fed had to ask permission of the Secretary of Treasury to do lots of things that didn't used to need permission. And the Secretary of Treasury was all too eager to say, yes, yes, do it, please do it. So there was no collision, but it's possible that people in the Congress that are hostile to the Fed could go back to that well again and try to make that a tougher hurdle to jump. Another possibility, and you'll remember if what I'm about to say happens, it won't be the first time, is the Congress could dip into the Fed and grab some money. The Fed used to have more capital. And at one point a few years ago, I'm trying to remember, I think it was to finance a highway bill or something like that. They grabbed it from the Fed. That could happen again. And let me add, thirdly, related to that, because of the current constellation of interest rates, the Fed's not making a profit anymore. The Fed used to make these copious profits and turn them over to the U.S. Treasury, which reduced the budget deficit. It's not doing that anymore, and it may soon be operating at a loss. And I'm not sure many members of Congress have glommed on to that fact yet. But when they do, that could turn against the Fed also. The Fed's under a lot of pressure, isn't it, these days to pursue all sorts of goals, to use monetary policy and to some extent regulatory policy to pursue all sorts of goals. I'm thinking climate change is now very much on everybody's mind and everybody talks about that all the time and that there should be no monetary policy to achieve that. And of course, recently, particularly in the wake of the upheavals in the wake of the George Floyd killing of the Black Lives Matter movement after 2020, we got much more demands that the Fed should start pursuing greater racial equality as one of its objectives as monetary policy. And I think to some extent, the Fed is even under Janet Yellen and to some extent under Powell has even signed on, even endorsed this. You may think these are all perfectly laudable goals, but are these objectives really consistent with the overall objective of a sound currency? I mean, if the Fed is having to pursue the unemployment rate for black Americans as a serious objective, how can it do that at the same time as ensuring that, you know, the inflationary pressures are kept in check? It just seems to me that the Fed's being loaded up with all kinds of social and broader objectives for society and, and politics that may not necessarily be consistent with what you really want a central bank to do. First, let me say I'm sympathetic to what you said. And let me, however, draw a line between the two issues, starting with what I think is the easier one. The Fed knows how to reduce the black unemployment rate. And it's the same things you do to reduce the white unemployment rate or the average unemployment rate for the whole economy. It's not really anything different that monetary policy can do. Now, there may be other things that various kinds of anti-discrimination laws and so on can do, but they're not controlled by the Fed. The Fed has great influence over the state of demand in the economy, and that in turn exerts great influence over the unemployment rate, black, white, Asian, Latino, whatever, any unemployment rate that you can think of. And that's basically what Janet Yellen and Jay Powell, not in the words I just used, have said about that, that when people have complained about Fed easing leading to greater income inequality because rich people own the stocks and the bonds, their answer has been, okay, but the most important thing that we can do for the people near the bottom of the economic totem pole is keep the unemployment rate low. And that's what we want to do. And that's what we're doing. So I think that's an easy issue to dispose of 
in that way. The Fed is not able, doesn't have any instruments to reduce racial or any other kind of prejudice in society, even though it finds that hateful. The other issue you raise is about climate, which is a little dicier. And there, the important thing to distinguish is between the Fed as a monetary policy agency, which is the way we usually think of it, and it is, there's nothing wrong with that, and a bank regulatory agency, which the Fed also is. Now, it's not the only one in the U.S., but it is a bank regulatory issue. And it would be naive and irresponsible of the Fed not to be thinking about, let me just put it a little more concretely than maybe I should, the stranded assets problem, that if financial institutions have made huge loans to fossil fuel industries and those fossil fuel industries run amok for a variety of reasons, that's going to damage the banking system. And the Fed would be derelict in its duties not to be paying attention to that. So I don't think the Fed can do anything about climate change with monetary policy, but it almost has to do something about it when it comes to regulatory policy. Finally, and thank you, it's been a fascinating conversation, but again, in the context of your book, and this is obviously something that monetary policy can achieve itself or even fiscal policy can achieve itself, but one of the things we've seen in the last two decades in the US is uh, certainly since the financial crisis, is a you know, weakening of the US's economic performance, a slowing in the trend rate of growth. Now, some of that is partly demographic. Some of it does seem to be productivity related. Is there a role for policy, either fiscal or monetary, to lift the US, to lift the economy back onto the sort of trend that it perhaps it was on back in the 1990s or even the 20th century more generally? Or is that the subject for structural reforms that are beyond the scope of federal policy? Well, it's both actually. So people don't realize what you just said correctly, Jerry. A large hunk of the slowdown in growth is because of slower population growth. I can remember when the U.S. population was growing one and a half, two percent a year when I was younger. And now it's growing less than a half a percent a year. Just run with those numbers. If it went from one and a half to a half, that knocks a whole percentage point off the attainable growth rate. I don't think there's anything much we can do about that or should do about that. We're having less population growth. But when it comes to the productivity piece, which is the rest of it, there are policies that are highly relevant to that. An obvious one is the mix of monetary and fiscal policy. So if we can manage to mix looser monetary policy with tighter fiscal policy, you might say, ho, ho, good luck with that. But if we could manage that, that should bring real interest rates down and make a more propitious environment for investment. So more capital should lead to higher productivity. On the purely fiscal side, there are things that can be done and are done to boost innovation and you know investment in highly productive capital. So the CHIPS Act, that was, had nothing to do with the Fed, but had to do with fiscal policy that passed not so long ago, is an example of that. The R&E credit, which keeps getting you know renewed, off sometimes with difficulties year after year, is an effort to push more into that. Government support for laboratories, including government laboratories, is highly relevant to all of that. Now, none of that has anything to do with the Federal Reserve. On the fiscal side of the ledger, there is potential and actual influence 
What about, you know, as Republicans would argue, as conservatives would argue, what about actually reducing the size of the state? We've got these long-term challenges from entitlements in particular, which are going to eat up more and more of the federal budget and impose more and more of a burden on us. Can we possibly expect to sustain even the current rates of growth, let alone accelerate growth, with that rising fiscal burden? I think the answer is yes, but it's a challenge. And One of the things we're going to have to do, I know that a lot of the readers of the Wall Street Journal don't like this idea, is to raise more money in taxes. We have had for a while now an aging population and it's going to continue to age. So just take the Social Security and Medicare pieces. Unless society is going to throw old people on the scrap heap, but I don't believe we'll do that. And as an old person, I don't think we should do that. (laughs) Uh, Unless we're going to do that, more spending on pensions and health care is inevitable. But how can you keep raising that proportion of the economy, which is paid for by a smaller and smaller productive center, sector of the economy that is going to have to keep paying for this, I don't mean this, disrespectfully to retired people or but who are fundamentally unproductive? I mean, how do you do that without fundamentally rethinking the nature of the, the, the size of the state? Yeah, I think it's not trivially easy, but feasible. To me, this is Maybe I'm exaggerating or underestimating, I should say. I think you can do this mostly by tinkering around the edges, raising income taxes a little, maybe raising taxes on consumption a little. We're not talking about gigantic magnitudes. We're not talking about doubling the tax burden. We're not talking about raising the tax share of GDP in the United States to what it is in Germany or Sweden or France. And by the way, all of those economies seem to be doing okay, but just leave that aside. We don't need to do that. I don't think the American political system wants to do that. So I think we can raise revenues at the federal level modestly without causing ruination in the economy. Alan Blinder, Professor of Economics at Princeton and author of a new book on the monetary and fiscal history of the United States in the last 60 years. Thanks very much for joining us. Well, thank you very much. That's it for this week's episode of Free Expression. Thanks very much indeed for listening. Please join us again next week for another deep exploration of the big issues that are driving our world. Thank you and have a great week. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive, with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com.